I would ask you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 11. We've made our way through a bit of this portion of scripture in which the Apostle Paul um, addresses the issue of whether God has rejected his people, whether there has been a, a full rejection, the answer is no, but there has been a partial, and it's because of their unbelief. Uh, the people of Israel have sought righteousness in all of the wrong way, having a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They did not submit themselves uh, to the righteousness of Christ. They did not believe in the gospel. And um, they had received rather a spirit of blindness, uh, which the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Um, and um, Paul's concern is, again, not just to lay out... Um, a rationale for Jewish unbelief. He had to do that because there were divisions in the church. There were attitudes that one party took against another uh, because of the way that I've explained before the church was founded. And um, I want you to note that Paul's concern, again, is is a a pastoral concern. Um, It's a concern that the people he's addressing would have a, a proper attitude uh, towards one another. Uh, and at this point, apparently, they were not having a proper attitude at all. Um, you know, notice in verse 18, really at the heart of all this matter, and sometimes this gets neglected, is Paul saying to them, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the roots that supports you. In other words, the... Um, the natural branches he's speaking of are the, are, are the, are the, are the Israelites, the people that remained in the olive tree. Um, and you have the Gentile branches that have been grafted in. And now the Gentile branches who are grafted in should not be arrogant towards the natural branches, the Jews. And, and that was their tendency. It was this attitude of arrogance. He says in verse, at the end of verse 20, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Um, Again, it's a problem of the way in which they were viewing their brothers and sisters. Uh, Sad to say, the anti-Semitism that was apparent in the ancient world, the anti-Semitism that's apparent in the the modern world, uh, did afflict the believers. Uh, They were part of that kind of a culture. And um, even as the Jews would have a sense of pride in their Judaism and their religion and their monotheism and their relationship to Yahweh, their God, and view the Gentiles as dogs, uh, that notion or those attitudes were reciprocated. And and so you have these uh, problems within the church that Paul is addressing on a pastoral level. So however we understand uh, this whole matter of the way that God proceeded, uh, bringing in Jews, uh, I'm sorry, bringing in Gentiles and what was initially a Jewish thing, um, it's not that Paul is telling them, no, I want you to speculate about what's going to happen in the future when um, great numbers of Jews come in, or maybe after the rapture, what happens then when the millennium comes in. He's not addressing anything like that. And sad to say, that's often how this passage gets understood. Uh, some years ago, within the context of Reformed Baptist, uh, Reformed uh, understanding of God's word, Uh, The editor of the Banner of Truth, Ian Murray, wrote a book called The Puritan Hope. 
Has anybody ever read the Puritan Hope? My wife was here, her hand would immediately go up. Well, what uh, that was an endeavor to do was to endeavor to really teach a kind of a post-millennialism. In other words, that before Jesus returns, there's going to be this great golden age in the church of missions and evangelism and revival where multitudes would come to faith in Christ and it would happen in the way that's described here in Romans 11. And Ian Murray took this passage and said, this is what the Puritans understood uh, the future to be. He was contending the Puritans were by and large post-millennialists. And this was something that spurred missions, this spurred the bringing of the message of the gospel to the world so that this would get fulfilled. And uh, there's a sense in which I think he's right. I know in the 19th century there was a lot of explorations that were being done by churches in Scotland and in Britain to send out investigative uh, uh, people to investigate missions to the Jews because they were hoping to see this great revival come amongst the Jews. And so the people were sent out to the Holy Land and people were sent out to do these. Uh, Robert Murray McShane was involved in one of these things. And he left on one of these uh, investigative missions to, to, to see if this was a good time for the, the churches to sponsor mass missions to the Jews in the hopes that this passage would be fulfilled. And what is this passage saying? Well, Paul speaks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Uh, he speaks, let's begin in verse 11. He says, I asked that they stumble in order that they might fall. His answer is no, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, through their unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles. When Paul in the book of Acts would come to a synagogue and preach the gospel, and they would uh, not receive it, some would be saved, but the majority would oppose him. He would uh, knock off the dust from off of his feet and say, turn from you, and I will go to the Gentiles. And that happened again and again in his ministry in Acts 13 and Acts 17. You see that scenario taking place. And Paul's explanation is that, um, that, that salvation now has come to the Gentiles. In chapter 13 of the book of Acts it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, that Paul was turning from the, the Jews to the Gentiles, they were glad. And uh, it says, As many was, as were ordained to eternal life believed. Is what it says in Acts 13. Um, and so it, it, the Gentiles apparently had a great desire to become Jewish, to worship Israel's God. That's what those God-fearers that were in all those synagogues were about. The stumbling block was they wouldn't submit to circumcision. They wouldn't submit to the dietary law of Moses. Those were things that were the point of separation between Jew and Gentile that Gentiles at least would most bristle at. To submit to circumcision would be you know, painful, first of all, if you're an adult, and just something that they would not go that far. But they wanted to be at the, at, at the festivals. They would come to the, the festivals of, pa, of, of uh, the Passover and uh, the Feast of Weeks and the booths in Jerusalem. You had the, the court of the Gentiles in um, Herod's temple. Uh, so the Gentiles were not able to go into most of the precincts in the temple, but there was a place for the Gentiles, because so many of them came. Remember the, the, the time of the book of Acts in chapter 2? There were many from all of these regions. They probably weren't all Jews. They, most of them were Jews. But it says God-fearers. They were proselytes, people that came and were actually circumcised from the Gentiles. Um, but there was a desire for the, for the um, Gentiles to become 
worshippers of the God of Israel. And now with the unbelief of the Jews, this has happened. And Paul quotes the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32. This is God's going to do this. God, he did this in chapter 10, that God seeks to make jealous. Uh, this is in 10, 19. But I say, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And so at one point in time, it was the Jews that had all the blessings. The Gentiles were excluded. Now the, Gentiles, now the Jews exclude themselves because of their unbelief. And the Gentiles, many of them, get the desire of their heart to come into the embrace of Israel's God. Not through circumcision or the dietary law of Israel, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they embraced. And, and, and now Paul says, God says, I'm going to make you jealous by embracing a nation that we're not a nation. Uh, a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And that's because in Deuteronomy 32, we saw this, that God was angry because of the idolatry of the Jews. The Jews were worshiping idols, and God became jealous, a jealous God who saw his people, his bride, go after other gods, and he was angry. And now uh, God says, I'm going to turn the tables, I'm going to make you angry when, a, when Gentile inclusion comes about. And, and the idea seems to be that the joy of the believer is such and the life of the believer is such that the Jews have something to be jealous about. <laughs> that They look at the Gentiles now receiving the blessings of the salvation of God and now they desire to come into them. And that's Paul's hope, that he would so plant Gentile churches in all the cities of the Gentiles and those would be just models of godliness, models of biblical joy and praise and worship and adoration that Jews looking on in would be what the Gentiles used to do. The Gentiles would look at the Jewish synagogue and see the God of Israel being preached and spoken about. And they became, the, the, the tables would get turned. And because of the godliness, I believe, of the people of, 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 of the Gentile mission. And so Paul's living in hope of that and he wants the people in the church at Rome to share that hope. And the fact that he's an apostle to the Gentiles does not mean that he doesn't have a concern for the, his, own, his own nation. He's already expressed that on a couple of occasions. His desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. He says, I wish myself to be a curse from Christ for my brethren's sake. And so in 13, he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I as an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Again, his ministry is to the Gentiles primarily, but yet his ministry to the Gentiles is designed in his own thinking to make his fellow Jews jealous of the blessings that are received in Jesus Christ, and thus to save some. And then he says, again, um, back in verse 12, he makes this contrast, if their trespass, that is their unbelief, means riches for the world. It means a Gentile mission. It means Gentile people coming to faith in, in God through Christ. And their failure means riches for the Gentiles, the riches of God's salvation, now coming to the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, unfortunately, Paul doesn't go on to say what does their full inclusion include. Just how much of Israel fully included into the church is he speaking about? Well, he doesn't give any measurement of it, but that's not his design. His design is to make the Gentiles share his vision. 
That through the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, the Jews would become jealous as Gentiles received the blessing of Israel's God. And Israel really experiences the reality that they forfeited many of these blessings that come through God's own appointed Messiah. So he's concerned to make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And then he says, for if their rejection, which they've seen, their unbelief, if that means the reconciliation of the world, the world coming to faith in Israel's God, coming into the kingdom of God, uh, along with Jews in one body, being reconciled to God through the blood of the cross, what will their acceptance mean? That is their turning. Their turning to, to Christ mean, but life from the dead. And the thought was there amongst those that went out on these investigative missions to the Jews to see whether this was the time to bring the message of the gospel to Jewish people in mass. The thought is, well, now the mission to the Jews is going to bring this about. We go out and we begin to preach the gospel to the Jews and they'll come down to faith. The only problem was they didn't. I'm talking about the 19th century and attempts to bring the gospel to um, places where there are large Jewish settlements. Robert Murray McShane was involved in one of these things. I'm saying this to those who come and late, you know what I, what I was talking about before, um, that that, that did, didn't seem to happen. Uh, and what happened was that Jews began to share more the vision of the Jews for Zionism than it was that the Jews accepted the Christian vision of Jesus. So that's one of the reasons that out of that came I like the Balfour Declaration that came from the British Prime Minister that declared the Israel to be a place of uh, Jewish homeland. And then the plebiscite that came about in 48 that, that made Israel a nation. Uh, large measures of people concerned about Jewish evangelism in the 19th century didn't really see great in gatherings of Jews into the church, but the large measures of people, large amounts of them became Zionists in their favoring of a Jewish homeland. That's how it worked historically. And that's fine. That's, that's well and good. Because in Europe, the Jews were being slaughtered. To find a homeland for them was a very merciful and wise thing. Of course, the problem is we didn't figure on the Palestinians and what, what needs to be done about them. And again, the Palestinians view evangelical Christians as just having a favoritism towards Israel that excludes them, and that's not a good thing. But that's political, and I don't really want to get into that. But what I do want to get into is that Paul wants the church to share his vision of, of what a Gentile ministry would bring. It would bring, in his own day, he's not talking about the 19th century, he's not talking about today, He's, not, he's talking about then, then and there, that the reconciliation of the world to God through Christ um, would bring about a change in the hearts of many Jews. And I believe in his day he did experience that. Um, I believe in his day that there were many from Israel that did come to faith, but it was hardly the majority. And the whole question is, what does full inclusion mean? Um, I think it means more than a remnant. At this point, Paul's writing the book of Romans, there was a remnant that came to faith, but there's a fuller measure that he expects will come to faith. To what extent Paul realized it in his day, I don't know. To what extent we'll realize it in this our day, I don't know. I hope wonderfully. I hope wonderfully we'll see large measures of Gentiles so living as to make Jews jealous. So living as to make Palestinians jealous. 
So living is to make Islam jealous. So living is to make Hinduism jealous of the blessings that we possess in Christ. But I think it's the question of how we so live and labor and minister and love and show forth the praises of the God who called us out of darkness into marvelous light that really is the measure of seeing this turning in people's lives and hearts because they see in Christianity something not in the world, something that's otherworldly, something that's transcendently wonderful and majestic and glorious. But now Paul goes back to the situation now being in the church. Um, and again, it's not specul. This is, doesn't give us reason to speculate what the future holds. Just these are principles that guided Paul's life, that guided his ministry, the principles that you guide our thinking, our, minist- our understanding of ministry, our understanding of our, of, of our work in the world, that should follow a Pauline example, should follow a Bible example, such as we have here. But Paul goes back into the history in relation to the present time when he uses the expression in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so also are the branches. Now this is very difficult to understand. You don't understand something of the Old Testament background. Paul, with reference to the dough being offered, is referring to a passage in the book of Numbers when the people are told that when you come into the land and you get in, bring in your first harvest and you bring in the grain and you start to use the grain to bake bread, the first loaf is to be presented at the tabernacle. It's to be an offering that's given unto God. Well, what do you think about that matter? Taking in the grain, making dough, offering a loaf of bread to the Lord as a religious offering, and then saying, well, the rest of it's for me. <laughs> the rest of it is, is no. It, this is token, a token of your acknowledgement that the whole harvest is of God. Every loaf that is baked from that harvest is God-given. And all of life is a gift from God. One of the blessings, so the, the two blessings I learned growing up in a Jewish family when they sent me off to uh, Hebrew school in order to be prepared for the bar mitzvah. Um, they gave me the instruction. And, and the first two things they teach you is the prayer for the bread and the prayer for the wine. They'll begin, which is, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe. And then there's one for the bread, who gives us the, 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 the grain from the, from the ground, or, for, or, or, or from the earth, the bread that comes from the earth. And so the recognition is that though there is the loaf that's presented formally as a token of thanks and praise to God who gives the harvest every day's bread, is from God. Of course, that's in the perspective of the Lord's Prayer. We're told to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And the recognition is all of life is holy. Not just the loaf that you offer in in sacrifice, but everything that comes from it. And Paul's using that as an illustration. And the illustration, again, it's it's something that not every commentator agrees on what it is that he's illustrating. I think basically goes on and he speaks about the uh, the root and the branches. I think he's talking about Israel's forefathers, the patriarchs. He's talking about the patriarchs were holy. Uh, they were those whom God 
gave promise to, and uh, their descendants are to be deemed to be their descendants. They are the natural children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hence they should not be viewed as just, I mean, they should view themselves as holy, as consecrated unto God. They should view themselves in terms of their responsibility to receive the divine provisions and the divine <coughs> blessings. They should see themselves as prime candidates to receive the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. But And again, the remnant is being brought in. And that's the relationship of the people who now receive the gospel, being instructed in Israel's scriptures. Uh, they're, they're, they rest upon the blessings God extended and offered and promised to the patriarchs, the offered up dough that was well-pleasing to him. And these descendants, um, since the first roots is holy, the whole lump is, is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, the root again being the patriarchs, and here the picture is going to be given of an olive tree. The root of the olive tree being Israel's patriarchs, the promises that were given to them, and the branches being that which descended from them. That which descended from them. And Paul says of this picture of the olive tree, which is a frequently used imagery in the Old Testament, fig trees, olive trees, um, uh, vineyards are all used as emblematic of God's planting of a people and of the growth of that people. Uh, Ezekiel 17, I believe, uses the olive tree as uh, its perspective. Um, but if some of the branches, he says, were broken off, again, this matter of the unbelief of present-day Jews, are branches. They belong to the tree. They were born into these blessings, but they rejected the blessings. And Paul says their unbelief has brought them to be broken off. And you, <laughs> Gentiles, he's now addressing the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot he calls them. You don't belong to this cultivated olive tree. God cultivated it. He planted it. He cared for it. He um, was the like the vine dresser that Jesus speaks about, the picture of the vine. Uh, he um, did all that work to make this a, a fruitful olive tree. Uh, you had no such relationship to this God. You had no such relationship to divine cultivation of, uh, of what you were as Gentiles. You were simply a wild olive shoot. And uh, this wild olive shoot, he says, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You share in the nourishing root of the promises of the given by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, now do not be arrogant towards the branches, that is the natural branches, and now he's talking about the church. Again, the natural branches weren't broken off. These natural branches continue to believe. They believed in the promises given to the patriarchs, but they came to faith in Christ. But now the Gentiles and Rome were being arrogant towards these Jewish branches because, again, the emperor said, be gone. And then they came back. And there were these tensions. He says, if you are, that is arrogant, remember it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. You've been grafted into a Jewish thing. Jews were not grafted into a Gentile thing. It's Gentiles that are grafted into a Jewish thing. But you'll say, 
The branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So, look at how horrific it is that they didn't believe that they were broken off. Well, he says something about the character of these Jewish people anyway. Well, so that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. It's unbelief that was the reason that they were broken off. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, people, the, the natural heirs of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, neither will he spare you. Again, you see how Paul is concerned to address the problem there in the church. The problem of this discord between Jews and Gentiles in the church. He's not speculating about what the future holds. He's talking about the church and its unity. He says, neither will he spare you if you don't believe. If you commit idolatry, you apostatize, you will not be spared. You too will be broken off. And his conclusion is, note then the kindness and the severity of God. There is severity towards those who are fallen. But this severity doesn't extend to the natural branches that remained. And those are the people in the church. Why are you having bad attitudes towards your Jewish brothers in the church? Because unbelieving Jews were broken off. Those are unbelieving Jews. And they were broken off because of their unbelief. But the people that remain in the church are not guilty of unbelief. They are believers. And they have received God's kindness. Same kindness he gave to you. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. You Gentiles have received kindness. A kindness that is naturally the inheritance of the Jew. But you've received God's kindness. It's provided you continue in his kindness. He was kind to you. Continue in his kindness. Don't be unkind to the people in the church who are of Jewish heritage because, well, their relatives don't believe the gospel. There's not to be guilt by association here. In the church, everybody stands on their own. In the church, we're saved individually. We're not saved in families. We're not saved in, in terms of na national identity. We're saved when we hear the gospel and we come to faith. And we've received the kindness of God. Receiving the kindness of God. Be kind. Be kind. Continue in his kindness. Replicate his kindness. He's been kind to you, but you know he's been kind to your Jewish brother as well. And you reflect the kindness of God in your relationships one to another. And this is true of Jew and Gentile together. They're to relate to one another, not with pride, not with arrogance, not with a sense of superiority, not looking to diminish them because of well, their Gentile dogs or come from homes and families that ate ham. Um, nor are you to treat the Jews in that way because of the unbelief of their families they've come from. Kindness to you who believe, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, that is, the unbelieving Gentiles, uh, the unbelieving Jews, the ones who have been cut off, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. 
At this point, they've been broken off. At this point, they've heard the gospel. They've rejected the gospel. They've become enemies to the gospel. But yet, we live in hope, don't we? That even people who were just hard-hearted and cold to the message of the gospel, God yet would, will work. Even if they, unbelieving Jews who have been cut off from the olive tree, if they do not cut off in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So, you live in hope. You know, <laughs> you not to have arrogance towards the unbelieving Jews because they come from unbelieving families, and you not to have arrogance towards their unbelieving families because we still even hope that God is able to graft them in again. For if you, again, you Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you're and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, something that God has been working on since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, caring for the olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? The thing that should surprise you is that you got grafted in. It should be no surprise if Jews are grafted back into their own olive tree. That's what should have happened at the first. But if God grafted you in, he's certainly able to graft them in again. And then Paul brings the conclusion about in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. And again, do you hear what I'm trying to say? I'm insisting on this because this gets lost. Somehow this is the point that gets lost in translation in the way this passage has been read in the evangelical church. Is that this is not to be classified in terms of eschatology. This is to be classified in terms of ecclesiology in terms of the church, how the church is to function. And Paul's giving instruction about the church, which he's always called a mystery. That there is a, an aspect of, of mystery that he has been given, that's been revealed to him that was not revealed to other generations. Look at how he puts it in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's not full and complete. Paul believed. The other disciples of Jesus who were Jews believed. God preserved for himself 7,000 in Elijah's time that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. It's partial. It's not full. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what does that mean, the fullness of the Gentiles come in? What do you think Paul thought about that? Is he thinking that that means every Gentile in the whole wide world is going to come to faith in Jesus? The fullness of the Gentiles? No, it means all the Gentiles that are to believe will believe, right? I mean, this is all a matter of according to election of grace. He said again and again and again. God show you mercy to whom you'll have mercy, compassion to whom you'll have compassion. Ultimately, God has a purpose for the gospel in the world in which is going to form a people for himself, a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, 
that's comprised of both Jew and Gentile in one body. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. But you see, the problem was, in the reading of the Old Testament, the Jews and modern people today don't see what God's doing. They see Israel as the chief thing and Gentiles becoming Jews. And Paul's saying this whole mystery component of this gospel is that though that's the way that the promise reads in the Old Testament, not always, but at least the majority of the promises of the Old Testament are couched in a very Jewish context. Again, it's a revelation given to Jewish people. And it's a revelation that's given to Jewish people in terms they would readily understand. But now when Jesus comes, it changes things. The expectations that Jews had with what the future would hold is simply not what Jesus says will occur. There's a sense in which the coming of Christ has brought about an alteration in the way the promises are fulfilled. It's not that there are different promises, it's just the manner in which it's fulfilled. Now Jesus says, they'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. He doesn't say just sit, sit tight at the temple and just wait for the Gentiles to start flowing to Mount Zion and just wait for Mount Zion to begin to rise and get elevated above all the mountains, which is the way Isaiah 2 puts it. That Mount Zion will become greater than all the other mountains. It means this ecological, this is going to be this uh, topological, this elevating of the mountains so that... Uh, you know, the puny little Mount Zion in comparison to many other of the mountains, like Mount Hermon, much bigger, um, now it's going to be ascend, you know, going to lift it up, an earthquake or tectonic plates or whatever, it's just going to drive Zion up. And then all the nations are going to come into Zion, and they'll come to learn the word of the Lord in this central sanctuary. Well, that, that's, that's Isaiah. That's Isaiah. But when Jesus comes, how does Isaiah's hope of Gentile inclusion, of all the nations learning the ways of the Lord, of the swords being turned into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Nation won't go to war against nation any longer. Um, You know, they will learn the ways of of the Lord. They'll learn the ways of of peace. Go back and read it. (laughs) I say it too. I'm doing it from memory and I'm botching it up. But nonetheless, the essence is there. The essence is there. How does Jesus present that now? It's go out into all the world. It's make disciples of all the nations. Going. Going. It's not staying. Waiting for the nations to show up. It's going into all the world. It's bringing the message of the gospel to others. It's Paul's Gentile mission. This gets fulfilled in the New Testament in a way that sends forth the gospel to the nations. And it's an interesting thing, the way this gets presented in the book of Revelation, chapter, chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. You, you, you want to see how this turns from a, a Jewish picture to a Gentile picture? This is a really good way to understand it. Now, I just have to remind you of something that happened in chapter 5. In, in, in chapter 5, uh, 
John in chapter 5 saw this scroll that had these seals, these seven seals, and no one was worthy to open up the scroll. And he begins to weep. And he's told, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then the song is given, worthy are you to take the scrolls and open the seals in verse 9. So, He hears this message. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is conquered. Well, okay. Lion, the lion's coming. Aslan's coming. Great, great lion's coming to defeat all the enemies of God and to open the seals and to interpret to the whole purposes of, 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 of God's work, work in, in his kingdom. Um, but then it says, and then I looked, then I looked in verse 14, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I think that happened early. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go back to five and six. It's, it's actually in verse six. He, he hears the words about the lion. And then verse 6 it says, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb. As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Let me ask you something. Is John seeing something different when he, uh, in, 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 in 6, when he sees the lamb? Is that different from the lion he heard about? No, it's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus, just in a different manner of description. He hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees the lamb that had been slain. And I think you have that in the book of Revelation as something of a way that John presents things. What you hear, and then you turn and you look and you see, and what you see is the same thing that you heard about, except you see it in a different way. Well, having that understanding, let's come to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, there is the picture of, yes indeed, the 144,000. This troubling notion that uh, has brought so much pain in so many places where people have taken this as some kind of a a mystical group of people that have certain qualifications. I mean, they've done horrible things. Uh, They formed the Jehovah's Witnesses from this idea originally until the number of Jehovah's Witnesses exceeded 144,000 and they had to go back to the drawing board and try to figure it out some other way. Uh, This whole thing that happened out in uh, Idaho with uh, this guy and uh, this woman who killed all their family members because they were the anointed ones of God to bring in the 144,000. I mean, it's just nonsense. Number 144 is 12 times 12, and it's really the picture of the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God, the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles of the, of, of the Lamb, which you see in chapter 21. When you see the New Jerusalem, you see both the, the, the foundations, which are the 12 apostles, you see the, the pillars uh, that are the 12 patriarchs, or maybe the other way around. But you have 12 times 12. And you have the 144,000. And you see it here. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. All the tribes of Israel. All the patriarchs are mentioned here. 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes. 
And then in verse 9, it says, and notice in verse 4, it's, and I heard the number of the sealed. And then in verse 9, after this, I looked and behold. Kind of the same scenario that you had before. But are you seeing something essentially different? Well, no. You're seeing the same reality of the totality of the redeemed. The totality of the people of God. And here it's described as a great multitude that no one can number. Now we're not just limiting it to you know this, this 12 patriarch thing. We're talking about a multitude like the sand in the sea. Like the promises that God gave to Abraham. As numerous as the stars of the heavens. A multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. And so it's the same reality in just two different ways. The promises that were given to the patriarchs, the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even, even the, the, the number from all the nations has as its, at its root a promise given to Abraham. You're not going to be able to number your descendants. You're not going to be able to number the, the, the number of the redeemed. They're too great to number. But it's couched both in terms of Old Testament realities and the reality of how it's understood now that Jesus has come and the spread of the gospel to the nations. And you see, that's the nature of the mystery is that with the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, what was understood in the Old Testament in one way gets understood in a completely, I shouldn't say completely new way, but in a way, in a way that wasn't anticipated, in a way that wasn't understood. And you see, mystery is the unfolding of something that was secret, something that was hidden. The word mystery is used in the book of Daniel when it describes Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar wants the, his wise men to first tell him what he dreamed and then tell him the interpretation of the dream. And he knew there might have been something fishy if he told him the nature of the dream. And uh, then they gave an interpretation. He says, no, 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 you tell me what I dreamed, dreamt first. And of course, no one in the kingdom could do that but one, Daniel, because he knew the God who could reveal mysteries. Now, the mystery was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was known to Nebuchadnezzar, but it wasn't known to anybody else until God unfolded the mystery. Well, Paul says something's happened with reference to the work of the gospel, the mission to the Gentiles, the way in Israel's unbelief, the way of Gentile inclusion, the way of being able, once again, to engraft unbelieving Jews back into their own natural olive tree, that all of this has a nature of a mystery that I don't want you to be unaware of. Now, the way this mystery is defined in the Pauline letters can be well seen in the Colossian letter. And I'm going to ask you to turn there to Colossians chapter, I believe it's chapter 2, might be 3. We'll find it. In Colossians and chapter 2. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, in verse 24, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, Christ's afflictions, of course, were redemptive. His is ministerial for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from him 
that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It was a mystery hidden, but now it's revealed. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is now revealed to the Gentiles. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 3 uh, expands upon this just with a little bit of, 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 a, of a change. And that's where he says in verse 7, I'm sorry, back up to verse uh, well, let's begin to verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. This mystery, hidden for generations, this mystery is now made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, it's not that it was the Old Testament silent about this. It's not that the people in the Old Testament had no clue. But the way it's been now made known is different from the way it was conceived in the Old Testament. It's not that the essence of the truth is absent. God has a purpose for all the nations. God has a purpose for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But in the Old Testament, that was the, Jew, the Gentiles coming to Zion. In the New Testament, it's the gospel ministers going out to the world. That's how it's made known. It was a mystery of how this would happen. And then, in the Old Testament, it was that Gentiles become Jews. They've got to get circumcised. They've got to keep the law of Moses. In the New Testament, no such requirements are made. And so look what Paul says, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So we're back to there being no distinction. The Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And the Jews are not excluded from the kingdom of God. The Jew and Gentile are received in the same way, on the same basis, have the same blessings. They are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. Everything gets leveled in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is arguing for in Romans chapter 9. That there simply is no distinction it's like, how often does he have to say it? But he's, he's really arguing for the same reality again. I don't want you to be unaware, he says in Romans eleven twenty five, of the mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, the covenant that takes away their sins is not like the covenant he made with their fathers in the wilderness, according to Jeremiah. The covenant he now makes with the people 
uh, in the new covenant is a covenant that's made with all the nations. It's made where Gentiles and Jews are received on the same basis. And it's in this way, he says, that all Israel will be saved. Now, the, the, the problem is, in the way people argue about this, is that people want to say that everywhere the Old New Testament uses the term Israel, it always means ethnic Jews. That's not my understanding. Uh, chapter 9, all, it, all who are of Israel are not Israel, he says. Uh, Israel receives a new definition in the New Testament. I mean, it's not completely new. It was in the Old Testament as well. Surely God is good to Israel, even to those that are pure in heart. Again, Israel is is those who wrestle with God. Those who say, I will not let you go. Those who say, I cleave to you. I cling to you. I trust in you. It's those who have faith in him become the Israel of God. By very definition. And there's no usurpation of Jewish Jewish blessings. That, that's Jacob doing the, the usurping. <laughs> but Jacob becomes Israel, one who wrestles with God. And we, and we receive the blessings without feeling that we've stolen anything from anybody else. Jacob's blessed, but Esau is not excluded. If he has faith in Jesus. He's not excluded. All who have faith in Jesus are received. There, there is an inclusion. There is an expansiveness. There is a, an opening up of the reality of Israel to all people in every place who come to Israel's God, who have faith in Israel's God. They become the spiritual descendants of Abraham. They become the Israel of God. So that Peter could write, to those that are the exiles in all the different places he speaks out in 1 Peter chapter 1 that you are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, using language from God's covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai using language that was given to Israel of old it now pertains to all who have faith in Christ, to all to whom he is precious all who come to faith in Christ and receive, receive the, the blessings of Israel we receive the promises of God. And I can't conceive that Paul is really teaching anything more than that. And it's in this way, in a way totally unexpected in the Old Testament, but now clearly understood in the New Testament, but what God's doing. God's making one body comprised of Jews and Gentiles, and guys, you've got to get along with each other. If he was writing this in modern day America, it might be where racism has reared its ugly head. And people in the church are thinking, well, okay, yeah, the blacks can come in, but I don't really trust them. And I don't really want them here, so I guess I have to just grin grin and bear it. And and someone has to say, no, that's unacceptable. God is made of one. All the nations on the face of the earth um, of one, of Adam. The, the, there is no biblical basis for racial disharmony and, raci- and everything in the Bible that draws us to racial harmony. I mean, the Bible does really powerfully address this whole question of all the things that divide people from one another. If Jew and Gentile, you get along in one body in Rome. You can have a multilingual church in Hazleton or a multilingual church in Cornwall 
and be a wonder to the surrounding world of how those people that don't even speak the same language and yet they love one another and they get along so well with one another and they're willing to bear with hearing someone preach in Spanish with the headset on giving them interpretation they say no I want an English speaker no you don't want an English speaker you want an able man of God regardless of what language he speaks because we're not a people of dispersed language we're of, of all nations languages, peoples, tongues it says united in one body I remember when I was uh, I went to Marseille, France to hear Al Morton speak <laughs> and uh, it, it was really interesting how you know, he would I'm used to Al, Pastor Morton when he was in his prime man, he, would, he would just be continuous action he would stand up on the pulpit he would give out a statement that he would make and then he would have to be interpreted he'd have to stop and wait for the interpretation to be given and then he would go on and make his point stop and wait for the interpretation to be given that's not natural to him as a preacher of the gospel but he was willing to allow himself to suffer the the difficulty and it's a minor difficulty really that others would understand have the word of God interpreted for them anyway it seems to me that that's where Paul what Paul's doing here he's addressing the problem the, the, the um, pastoral problem of the divisions of racial disharmony or uh, between Jew and Gentile in the church at Rome and calling people to understand exactly what it is that God is concerned to do in the way he is determined to save his people Israel. And that includes Jews and Gentiles in one body. And so he concludes, as regards the gospel, they, that is unbelieving Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regard election, these unbelieving Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, they may be resistant now, but who knows what God will do? Who knows how God will work? He's able to engraft them again, as he said before. And then he gives another word of perspective, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now these words don't mean that God's made a separate covenant with Israel that he's made with the church. It just holds forth the hope that Paul possessed that as he labored among the Gentiles, Jews would come to faith. That they would be stirred up to jealousy. That God would be faithful to his promises. And that promises were being fulfilled in terms of a remnant, but there was going to be something greater still to be expected. There will be something of a fullness to be expected. And how that occurs in our future, I don't know. Paul had that hope. Maybe we should labor in such hope as well. And we should not discount the fact that God still has a great purpose with not Israel so much as a nation, but Jews to hear the gospel. We have this massive community that's moving in here to Bloomingburg. And I've been thinking about when the weather gets warm, just to, to get out there and just walk around. Just like to meet people and just to, to talk to some of the people in this new branch of the Curios Joel that's up here. I mean, it's amazing what they built. <laughs> but, um, you know, whatever the positive or the negatives are with respect to that which the neighbors were thinking, we as a church need to be concerned for their salvation 
we need to have our heart's desire that they would be saved. And that means we need to make contacts with them, doesn't it? It means that we need to not walk away. It means we need to have our faces towards them. And our hands spread out to them as God's hands are spread out to them. A disobedient and gainsaying nation, my hands are stretched out to you. Anyway, that's my understanding of what the Apostle Paul is saying. For just as you were at one time disobedient, you Gentiles, to God. He's going back to that. Look at your own experience as a Gentile. And you were disobedient to God. But now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient. They're just in the same place you once were. Have a heart for them. Show a little kindness towards them. There were were Christians that showed you kindness when you were just in your unbelief as Gentiles. They showed kindness to you. Reciprocate that kindness. That by the mercy shown to you, they may now also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Again, we're back to chapters 2 and 3. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all... naturally disobedient we all naturally are under sin and I as an individual have gone past my time (laughs) I just looked at the clock had no idea we were five minutes past the hour uh, the time to cut off but I hope this has been helpful I hope this has been um, at least an understanding of Romans chapter 11 that fits in with the letter and fits in with the rest of the New Testament and it's not something that just meets us here that we have to just change our whole view of eschatology or a whole view of anything else. It's really consistent with the witness of the word of God uh, throughout. So may God be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul. We're thankful that he's a laborer in the, gar- in, the in the harvest who ever labored in hope. He ever labored with that sense of confidence that you would work a great work in the hearts of those to whom he ministered. And that through that great work that you would do in human hearts, that the work of the kingdom of God would grow and spread and abound. And Lord, we, we live in days that we have meager expectations very often. Very often we just think the place that we live in is just so hard, just so past any hope of Christianity having any kind of an impact. And yet, Lord, it's the impact that we bear in our lives, in our hope, in our joy, and our confidence as your people, and setting forth to them a better way, to show them the way of life, to show them the way of your love, to show them the way of your grace and provision in Christ, to be not growing weary in well-doing, but in endeavoring to recognize that we will bear fruit, and we will receive the blessings of the labors that we engage in, if only we do not faint. So we ask you to be pleased to hear our prayers. We ask that you'd bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we have a time of fellowship, and as we enter into the morning hour of worship. Hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.